0: Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of the LCLC podcast. The first season of this podcast is devoted to compiling an oral history of the Louisville Conference on Literature and Culture, or the LCLC, a conference that began back in 1972 here at the University of Louisville and continued without interruption for 48 years until the cancellation of the 2021 conference due to the COVID pandemic. In this episode, I talk with another conference regular, Alan Nadell, who is the William T. Bryan Professor of English at the University of Kentucky. He has published numerous books on post-World War II American film, drama, fiction, and popular culture. In addition to being a well-noted poet, Alan is also a leading expert on August Wilson and indeed on Cold War studies generally. I began what became a wide ranging discussion with the question I like to ask all my guests here on the LCLC podcast Just what do you remember about your first visit to Louisville?
1: Well, I first attended it in uh, February of 1981. And uh, the <laughs> Uh, the reason i attended it is that i had a lover who was in an open marriage and she was in miami of ohio and we saw this conference advertised where she could drive and i would come to and i submit and i have a, a whole other life as a rather serious poet i uh, just won um uh, the swanee review uh, poetry prize and, and i published in paris review Parsons. so i submitted some poetry and so we, we met here and we went to the conference. That was the first, my first uh, exposure to it. I came back uh, a number of times in the early 80s. And then what started to happen, well, there are two things. Uh, one was that the associations I was much more uh, significantly involved with, or some of them um, narrative particularly, but also uh, cinema studies or spring conferences, and I was spread very thin. When I got the job at Kentucky, and it was just down the road, I started coming back again more regularly. The other thing that happened is in 1981, I met Tom Byers. And we've been uh, good friends for, you know, now 40 years. And I started to hang out with at various conferences, a certain crew that sort of uh, uh, Tom was, I don't know, the center of what part of, including Linda Zing, Zwinger, Judith Roof, a bunch of these people. So it became a kind of crowd. I was more a fellow traveler because I wasn't, but so it became, you know, the, the conference became very much a, a social thing for me as well. And, you know, it started to develop a number of rituals. Like on Thursday night, Tom would always have a, a dinner at his house. And there would be these kinds of things that would kind of, you know, um, organize the stuff. And and that, that got me back there. Um, so there was this long hiatus. What I liked about it in 81, and I liked it a lot is it's the only conference where you had creative stuff going on at the same time. So if you, there wasn't any other session, you could always go in and hear some good poetry or some good fiction. And I remember hearing very early on a, a short story by a guy named Fred File, who, Turned out to be, you know, a a kind of minor, significant writer. And I went up to him after and said I loved it. And he just handed me a copy of the story. And um, uh, I I didn't stay really closely in touch with him, which I regret. But it was, you know, a kind of um, nice thing that you could meet a a bunch of writers. So I liked that a lot. Um, It just, if you're not a niche conference, the competition got, harder and harder. And this is the, this is, you know, I, I, again, I don't know if you know, I haven't, yeah, I have expertise in, in, in cold, in, in cold war and in narrative. I also, for almost 20 years was the conference liaison for the narrative society. And I worked with the people who did the narratives, the the conferences every year, and also ran three of them over that period of time. And therefore did a lot of research (laughs) Year by year, about exactly the questions you're asking and you're interested in, and one of the things that happened, I, I can actually give a kind of strange genealogy of this, is the total number of conferences tripled, in about a 20-year period from roughly the late 70s to the 90s. They tripled there's this the whole thing of conferencing, and I, I there are a lot of reasons for that I think, but In in the 70s, all you had to do, I think it went into the 80s to get on the MLA program was to have seven members sign a petition and you got a session, Uh, you know, and all of a sudden more and more people were going and more and more things were exploding and there was a time when there was up till about 72 there was a lot of hard hiring in, in 68, 69 and 70. People were getting offered jobs at the MLA. They had the interview and they get the offer because they were afraid that other people would get snatched up. Uh, the market started to shrink around 74. So you, you had this kind of whole large new generation of people who were connecting and reconnecting. And uh, they went to conferences a lot of for, for a lot of reasons. Um, One of them was to catch up with people, you know, it's it's part of the cycle from the baby boom on. A very strange thing happens in academia that is absolutely sweet generous. In most institutions, one generation of members, cohorts, comprises about one-third of the population. Okay, so that, you know, but roughly there are at any given moment, equal numbers of three generations of cohorts, roughly. Um, So that creates a certain kind of institutional memory, institutional practice, which can be good and can be bad. Uh, Before I went back to graduate school, uh, very early in my career, I started working in college administration in 1969. And I was a student activities, I was a director of student activities for Brooklyn College School of Humanity. So I worked with these. There you had, you know, very quick turnover with these student groups. You know, someone's there by their senior year, they're out. The institution memory is very short. So everyone would come in and say, what we did last year was what we always did. (laughs) because very few people remember two years back. And if anybody remember two years back, they say, oh, that was the exception. So there are two things, last year is what we always did, the year before was the exception. (laughs) And you had this kind of institutional coherence. What the baby boom does and what the GI Bill does first, and the baby boom does second, is to create a generation, not just in, in academia, but in all other parts of American life, where one cohort is automatically the majority. And that group starts to define everything. It's the case for um, things like medical care today. The, the problems of 60 and 70 year olds are getting the most attention right now. They were 20 years ago, it was the problems of 40 years old olds. They, they defined the bubble and this happened absolutely in academia. So you had this whole bunch of cohorts coming in and they started going conferences um, and they started doing these other things the role of the conference changed for them as they became more senior initially it was just to meet people and network and find friends and and certainly do a lot of sexual contact uh, i was at one uh, i think it was mumla mmla, M-M-L-A and they had a session near the end to talk about the shape of the conference and the format and whether they all agreed how it's, it's something like what we're talking about now, but it was a large group session. And one person said, well, I like to go to conferences and cruise and go to sessions and, and, and cruise and see what the new stuff is. And and I said, <laughs> as part of this group discussion, she, she was the first person I'd ever heard to who referred to cruising at a conferences as going to the sessions. So it was, you know, it was a kind of, real social and and that changed as people became more developed like we're getting their books out we're getting the became much more and and we're developing their own niches another half of this academia has been working in a scarcity model my entire lifetime and certainly since the 70s since i became an academic scarcity brings out the worst in everyone um all things being equal, people are generally pretty good, generous kind of, but once you put in scarcity in model, they, they, all kinds of ridiculous things become important. When I first went to Purdue University, I'm put on the undergraduate curriculum committee and we're supposed to deal with the, the course numbers, which were all irrational, you know, and the chair said, just get them, you know, this, some sequence, make some sense of this. And this led to a department wide fight over whether business writing should be a 200 level or a 400 level course. We were in fucking El Salvador. We were in El Salvador <laughs> and, and we're worrying about... It's a Foucauldian phenomenon. These petty things become important. They become the focus. You don't have to put American intellectuals in gulags, just make them academics and it they, they takes care of itself. One of those things, this gets back to conferences, is the conferences started becoming guilty pleasures. You got some of the cost of this subsidized, you could write some of it off on your taxes. So people who are 30 and 40 years old, who in any other profession, lawyers, doctors, would be well respected, well paid people with that level of education, are scrounging or waiting trying to get tenure are still being treated like children are grossly underpaid compared to people of comparable I- intellect and education and then they get the guilty pleasure of going to the conference and so we get to go out drinking yeah we hear papers yeah we deliver papers yeah there's lots of but we, we get that thing and we don't tell anybody that that's part of it it's a kind of perk of the job we get to cancel a couple of classes and we internalize, as Foucault would say, internalize the mechanisms of surveillance. So that, that's been another part of it. It's become a kind of ritual of the, a perk of the profession. Whereas if we were paid as much as doctors or lawyers and had, had this kind of respect, we'd pay for our vacations ourselves and we'd come out ahead.
0: Do you feel that the kind of work, cultural narrative, <clears throat> cultural narrative is what you called it? Yeah. Do you feel that the work of cultural narrative critics today is something that you see uh, being pursued in sufficient numbers by scholars coming up younger than yourself that this conversation will continue and continue drawing? Uh, participants of an intellectual caliber that will make for satisfying conference panels
1: I think it's not by that name I'm promote I have a you know an vested interest in calling it cultural now I, I which i think is a legitimate term it's not just a a, a branding but I, I you know and I could Do a whole uh, another hour interview on the the theoretical foundation of that but putting that aside i think a lot of the work being done is cultural some of it is is some people will call themselves new historicists or historicists i think some of them will just be putting things in cultural context. but i think a lot of work when i contact my friends what i've done at the narrative society over all the years uh is to put together one two or three panels so Uh, Three, six, or nine, or sometimes eight in in two panels, people doing. uh, And I just say that that the panel is organized not by a specific topic, but by an approach. And I invite people, they don't necessarily call themselves, say they're working in cultural narrative, but I know that that's the work they're doing. And I send them, you know, the the general. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I think it's, I think anybody who's talking about, Literature and Black Lives Matter is doing mm. cultural narrative. Uh, uh, anybody who's talking about QAnon is doing, because these these things are lodged in cultural narrative. Now you could tweak, I'm hoping, and I can, you know, work uh, works in progress and things I'm working on and prefaces to each of my books. I'm continuing to promote a, a common language of cultural narrative as a, you know, as a shorthand, like any other um, theory, a theoretical term isn't learning the label, it's using it as, as a shorthand so that you don't have to, every time you say metaphor, you don't have to go back to Aristotle and explain what it is, we all know, you know, or metonymy or any of these, you know. So, you know, I think I think as a label, how successful, I'm not alone in doing it, but how successful I'll be, I don't know. But it's it's the heart of the, 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 the essential work of cultural narrative is Roland Barthes' mythologies. Absolutely, every essay, exactly that. He's not using that word. He thinks he's a semiotician. I'm saying he's working a cultural narrative. Uh, I think the the explanation at the end is less uh, important than the actual work he does by pointing out how photographs and L work, what stories they are telling people about who they are and who they aren't. So it's been around, it's always been around there. Codifying the term, I don't know. The work's always been there, continues to be there. Uh, I'm obviously very promoted because I, I believe we have a, a, a political obligation, a social obligation. And uh, simply pointing out metalepsis, a-historically historically is, is an inter- a respectable enterprise. But it, 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 to what end is it being put? And I, I feel, and I, I respect people who do other things, I feel that I want People, people writing dissertations under me are doing that stuff. And they're publishing, you know? so. Uh,
0: Let me ask you a follow-up question um, that came to me as a reader of your book about flatlining in America and yeah. looking at films uh, as a way to understand the zeitgeist of the Reagan era and what you call Reaganomics or Reagan ideology, and I wondered how you would. We're in the midst of this sort of Trumpian term turn, but I wondered how you, you as a scholar, are looking at the cultural landscape now and what films you would seize on if you chose to bookend that book with a book that produced a study of our culture today?
1: Well, actually, the book has already bookended with uh, Demographic Angst, the book I published uh, two years ago, which is on films of the 50s and cultural narrative. But I am currently writing a book that is overdue under contract on 20 21st century American war films and how the genre is changed by the idea of having a war after the mission is accomplished and the relationship of a mission to a war where the term occupation stops being the last stage of returning returning to peace, which is considered normative, and instead becomes an ongoing job. So you look at something like Hurt Locker and you could take the episodes and put them in any order because there's no mission, it's simply a job. And then it becomes an untenable job and the only thing to do is get out. So that's what I'm working on now. Um, more uh, general, I just published an essay in A-Line, which is an online journal started by Hortense Spillers on politics, connecting Reaganism and Trumpism. Uh, it's called, um, uh, uh, Reagan's, uh, uh, Trump's dog and Reagan's whistle. Uh, and uh, basically it looks at all of the things he's doing and traces it back to Reaganism. Uh, and in, I, I also have an essay coming out on, on um, in a collection on new approaches to narrative which promotes cultural narrative, but it's about the film, The Fugitive and the Rodney King event and how it works, does the cultural work of um, disarticulating two narratives that are untenable. One, that black bodies moving in white space constitute a menace for which the police must aggressively protect us, against which the police And the other, we don't identify with beating helpless people on the ground. So I, I talk about the way the film actually has two fugitives and Tommy Lee Jones blows the head off of the black fugitive so I can save the white one. It's a much more sophisticated argument. I, I'm dumbing it down in this Notes version. But I, that's coming out also as an example of various cultural narratives that are re by that and uh, the Trump. And so it, it's kind of a, a, a chronic work that is anything I could start to work on I'm working it through the lens of how it articulates the tacit assumptions that make it legible to a, an audience. Uh, I gave a paper at Louisville um, a few years ago on the film The Hangover and the way it um, reflected the... Uh, economic uh, meltdown and the way it, it uses Vegas to separate itself from Orange County, which becomes the normative of restoration uh, uh, of a uh, fallacious um, set of relations where all of the economic loss is, is projected onto Vegas, which was the epicenter of the uh, The crisis, as was Orange County, the epicenter of the the bad paper that created it. So, you know, again, I'm dumbing this down.
0: My my question (laughs) to you is, do you, at at your age and where we are now in our culture, do you feel that there is a material effect that, if we call this an exercise of revealing truth to power, let's say that there are effects that follow from the critical practice of cultural narrative and doing the work of lodging these critiques?
1: Well, here's here's the answer I give always about any of the work we do. And, and, And I mean, it's had a profound effect on my life. Um, in the early 70s, we're um, the 70s, Pete Seeger used to sail his uh, yacht, uh, Clearwater Revival, up and down the Hudson and do these concerts and, and uh, to help clean up the Hudson River uh, and, and initiate, which was at that time an extremely polluted river. And, um, it must have been a slow news day or something, a July 4th weekend. I was watching, I was living in New York City watching local news and somebody went up there and there's this um, uh, news person interviewing Seeger and saying something pretty much like what you're saying, do you really think that you're going to do something by sailing your boat up and down the river? And he said, I don't know. All you can do is put your grain of sand on the right side of the scale. And 20 years later, I'm watching Law and Order. So I'm in the mid-90s. Um uh, and uh, you know, it always starts with a very benign thing in a park or a, if, if you watch Law and Order, you know never go to a park or or a garage because you're gonna find a body. Okay, so this is <laughs> there. This guy is fishing uh, on Riverside Drive or uh, Riverside Park in the Hudson River. And another guy comes up, starts talking to him and says, you know, would you really eat anything you caught out of the river? He said, you know, I wouldn't have. But then Pete Seeger started sailing his boat upping us 20 years later, uh, the, the river and now So I don't know, you know, if I were clairvoyant, I'd go to the racetrack and earn a good living. But you you put your grain of sand on the right side So it matters to me that if I write something, it's not simply to, you know, this is my bugaboo with um, narratology, not that there there aren't people who can apply it in a cultural or historical setting that usefully, but it's not an exercise, I wanted, I can't, I, I don't know. I, I teach this stuff in my classes. I'm looking at dissertations and my my students' works get published as books or they have a pretty good record. Who knows? I don't know. That's, you know, you... you right. You, you know.
0: I have a, a sort of follow-up to that question, which is, in thinking about the relationship between Trump and Reagan, is there a sense in which Part of what's satisfying about reading your analysis of 80s era film is that there's a kind of digging and as a sort of critical project of identifying what's beneath the surface and bringing it up to the surface to show. And when we get to Trump in our own age and Trump's I would say, his psychological mindset, you can't do that because everything is on the surface. There's
1: nothing to drag up. Well, I think that uh, about Trump, you're absolutely right. I'm not trying to get, again, I'm I'm always a little uncomfortable with surface depth uh, metaphors. I understand what you're saying. And I am, I would argue, making legible things that are unspoken that are there. If they weren't on wherever we want to call the surface, they wouldn't be legible at all. So I, I think they're they always already there. Uh, but having said that, you're right. Trump is is, is, is is as part of my argument, made very blatant things that, that Reagan did in, in more encoded ways.
0: So am I right in divining from your comments that if we go back to the our pre-podcast conversation about our connections as East Coast Jews and yeah. the uh the the at one time famous line uh that shut down McCarthy and the his uh pursuit have you no shame. Decency.
1: Yeah. No decency, yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you still think that works?
1: No. Uh, I don't. Um, the, 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 point is, and that's the biggest problem with Trump is you can't embarrass him. You can't appeal to his decency because he's perfectly happy not to have decency. And a lot of people who have been straining over the last years, when, when white middle class America, as they perceived, it, and I, again, I have another book called, uh, uh, television in black and white America, which looks at how fifties television while the news was promoting the civil rights movement, the primetime time uh, programming in the 60s and early 70s, particularly uh, Westerns and sitcoms, were reiterating the notion that America is a white place and that black bodies are alien and, and, and dangerous. Uh, 25% of all real cowboys were black. The real Wyatt Earp, which was the first adult Western 1954, comes out, 1955, comes out right after Brown v. Board of Ed, it, that that first w- adult Western series, and Gunsmoke, they come out the same year, that that first series has Wired Earp in in, in uh, Wichita, uh, and um, the, the real Wired Earp was hired. It was a totally integrated town. It was a cattle town and more than 25% of the people were black and Hispanic and a black man was shot and they increased the number of marshals and that's how the real Wyatt Earp was hired. So when you see this town now rewritten as white and it's Kansas, it's right, you know, so it says, okay, here's Topeka, which acknowledges there are black people in Kansas and here's the true West. And again, I've written many times about how the in, in the fifties, the West, uh, be, be simultaneously is America's history, its uh, and its mythology and its destiny, all wrapped into one. It's the Cold War West and the uh, geographical west and the historical West and the mythological west. now it's it's rewritten as a white space. so this this process keeps happening. Um so these people who have grown up with all of this, feel uncomfortable having to deal with a, an America that is not the one that w- had been iterated and reiterated in popular media and television and Trump says that's all right to be uncomfortable with them I'm not comfortable with them either you know so he, he, he's, he's, he's doing it very blatantly so he can't be shamed you can't shame Trump you, you all you can do is point out to other people what their uh, will what's effective I don't know God knows I don't know. It's effective. I know what you can do. And there's numerous ways in which this stuff is... Look at the storm on Capitol in January 6th. Almost everyone who stormed that Capitol through their entire adult life has heard the mantra over and over again, government is the problem. It's the Reagan mantra. It's repeated all the time. They grew up with that. So they in their mind, didn't think they were attacking the government. They thought they were solving the problem. You know, all Trump, you you can't shame him. That will never work. What you can do is attempt to make visible the problems. And the problem, you know, to go back to another part of our, our discussion with liberals, is they are afraid to be as explicit about this stuff. They will not attack Reagan. They will not point out the genealogy. They will not point out what is so blatant and so clear, um, because they don't want to alienate the potential Reagan voters, will never vote for them anyway. You know, they're, 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 same same thing with McCarthyism. They didn't want to seem like they were too far left.
0: I, uh, as we are wrapping up our conversation, and I realize you said. That if you were if you were clairvoyant you'd go to the track and make a good living but you know the the left and i i guess the general sort of intellectual landscape has recognized and talks frequently about the success that the right has had in shaping the supreme court and the entire legal system but really from my point of view that was half of a project and the the other part of the project was to attack and eliminate to some degree and certainly reshape our educational system in america yes and that that has gotten a lot less attention do you feel that there's any way, I mean, I, I just see a sort of glide pattern into the ground here. Is there any way to change that trajectory and get our education system back?
1: I don't know, but I think you are 100% right. I think there are many tenets of that. And again, I would, I trace a lot of it back to, to Reaganism. Before that, we had public education. I, one of the points I, I make is that the major one of the major accomplishments of Reaganism was to shift money from the working class to the lender class. And the, lend, uh, the lender class is not necessarily American, they're foreign countries, they're foreign. What happened, I, I gave a talk on, well, this is in the article too, but I gave a talk on a Dartmouth uh, summary before last. Um, you Between 1948 and 1965, the United States had the largest economic growth in the history of the world. And probably going forward, it will, isn't it? It was, and in that entire period, the cumulative inflation rate was 78%. It wasn't even a hundred percent between 1948 and 1965. Why? Because we had high tax rates you don't use monetary system to deal with te- you deal with tax. So when people made more money, because what tax rates did is it took the money from the pe- only from the people who had made it, whereas raising interest rates hurts everyone, takes it only from the people who could afford it, and all of it went into the public coffers to fund public education and fund healthcare and fund or potentially healthcare uh, fund a lot of the highway systems, all of those things.
0: Any. Last thoughts uh, about the conference or advice for me?
1: Well, I, you know, I gave, I gave you the, 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 the best tips that I, that I had. Uh, I would try to invite the, What you want is to increase your return group. Um because that becomes your, your base, and then you can expand from there. And to return, increase the return group, what you have to have are more good papers and more good discussion. I hope
0: you enjoyed my discussion with Alan Nadell. If you did, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and hit like. And as always, I would ask you to consider joining us for an upcoming LCLC conference consult the louisvilleconference.com for details thanks again for listening